This is Shai Held. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. A quick note before we start. Most of these episodes were recorded before October 7th, so even though it's very relevant to a lot of our discussions, you won't hear us talking about it. The final few episodes were recorded after October 7th, so you'll hear about it later in the season. But again, not at first. Welcome to Answers Withheld, a podcast about the big questions that kids, and let's be honest, adults too, ask about God, Judaism, and our place in the world. We definitely do not have all the answers, but we hope we can help you with language and framework so you can engage meaningfully with these questions. I'm Rabbi Shai Held. Today, I'm joined by Rabbi Avi Kilip, my friend and colleague from Hadar. I wanted Avi to join me here to talk about the first big question. In many ways, the big question, who is God? Thank you, Ravshai. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's interesting and exciting for me to be on this side of the mic as a guest on a Hadar podcast. Delighted to have you. I appreciate being here. And I have to admit, I find this question a little intimidating. It is indeed a big question. That's why we're taking it on. So Avi, what's really at stake here? Why is it important when kids ask us who God is? And how might we respond? You know, I think what's so amazing and beautiful and even inspiring by hearing these questions from kids for the first time in particular is that it's seeing that first spark, that first inkling of what we hope will grow into a real full, mature, spiritual life. Um, and these are just the first signs of it taking shape. I feel like it's it's parallel to those first baby teeth coming in when you have a newborn and you have this like thrill and excitement of like, wow, this, this baby's going to grow into a person and things are working the way they're supposed to. Um, I feel like when my children ask those first questions about what is God or how does the universe work um, or what happens when you die? You have that first glimpse, that first window into what will hopefully be um, a lifelong spiritual connection. And that's really exciting as a parent, even though it's also maybe going to be painful and terrifying, much like growing baby teeth can be painful and terrifying. <laughs> I'm just kind of taking in the image of the baby teeth and what I was struck by is it's almost like you're saying that the impulse to ask big questions is kind of essential to what it means to be human. It's part of coming alive. Yeah. And that's an amazing image. Yeah, and that it, and that we know how to watch for our kids' physical growth, but to watch for their spiritual growth, we have fewer baby books telling us which signposts to watch for on the spiritual growth meter. Um, and there's something really powerful about seeing these first signs and these first questions from kids. When did you first think about, wonder about, ask this question? When did I first wonder about who God is is a great question. I definitely am a person who I think had a conception of God from very young, but I don't have a particular first memory of asking about God. Um, I have a great family story, a family lore that I'll share about my little brother when he was only two, that somebody asked him, uh, there's four of us, four siblings in my family, and someone asked my little brother, how old are each of you? And so my brother responded by answering about each of his siblings. Hannah's five, 
Avi's four, that's me, Aaron's three, I'm two, and God is one. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. Um, and for my mother, it was such an amazing moment to realize that every night at bedtime, they had been saying the Shema, and every night they said to my brother, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he, what he had heard was, God is your one-year-old little sibling. <laughs> like, then he understood God as one to be God as a one-year-old, um, which is a story that we like to retell in my family over and over. Fascinating image of God as a small child. I wonder if that, does that resonate in any way for you or is that just totally out there? You know, the, one of the things I love about it is that it's not intimidating at all. You know, I think that sometimes for adults, we are scared to talk about God or even the idea of thinking about God or talking to God is so intimidating because whatever God is, it's something that's bigger than us. Um, and the idea that even a kid who's only two could come up with a conception of God that is somehow smaller or younger, um, I think is really interesting. And it's actually sort of emblematic of how kids are able to think about God in ways that are not um, sort of hindered by being intimidated or, or overwhelmed. Yeah, I think it's also interesting just because people who are dismissing or denying the idea of a personal God will often caricature that God as an old man in the sky. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting to think about God as a little one-year-old baby as the kind of counterweight to that image of God as the old man. I'm not sure, you know, I, I'm not sure you want to build a theology out of the image of God as a baby, but it is kind of striking as a contrast. Right. Well, not just a baby, but a baby who's in my family. It's the opposite right, of the exactly. sky also. Um, what about you? Do you have a first memory of wondering who God is? You know, it's interesting. Similar to you. I don't really know what my first memory is. I remember as a very young child, I had all kinds of questions about what my teachers taught me, but I never doubted when I was little, little, that there was this personal thing called God who knew what I was doing all the time. The truth is that the moment in my life when this became a question, and really I would say the question, um, and it's an intense moment, was when I was 12 years old when one day my father just died, um, very surprisingly, with no lead up. And I felt very strongly, kind of very quickly, both an urge to be more religious and totally not religious. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted God to comfort me, and I was so angry and disappointed at God that this could happen and it could happen to me that I wanted no part of it. But I remember that was kind of the moment when theologically I started to wonder, so what does God do, right? Like, who, who is this that this can happen and my whole life can just be shattered with no expectation, with no lead up, with no, you know, nothing to comfort me? Who, who is God? So the question of why did this happen for you was sort of ra wrapped up in the question of who is God or became the question of who is God? Yeah, I'm not sure that I had any other framework in which to think about the question, why did this happen to me? You know, the 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 medical answer, well, it happened because your father had a stroke in his sleep, just didn't really resonate. It wasn't almost like metaphysical enough. It wasn't like a big enough story. I wanted to understand, you know, why had my world been shattered? Like yesterday, I lived in one universe. This morning, I live in an entirely different universe 
Why did that happen? I thought there was a God who was supposed to run the world. That's what I'd been taught by my teachers in school. God runs the world. Well, if God runs the world, well, why is God falling down on the job? I mean, I remember really feeling that way as a 12-year-old. Where were you? What are you doing? Yeah, that's um, an intense and horrible experience for a child to to live through and also maybe perhaps the most extreme example, but certainly an example of just what's at stake in this question of who is God. Like, why why is it so scary for us when a child asks us who is God? Um, and one of the answers is because it feels like maybe what they're asking is— how does the world work? Or why do bad things happen? Or, you know... So Am I safe? Right, exactly. I would be curious to hear your thoughts on the difference between knowing God and, I don't know, experiencing God or feeling close to God. Um, because... For me personally, I feel totally at a loss when it comes to knowing God. Who is God? I'm, I'm like, I, I don't, I don't think I can be on this podcast. That's too scary and too big of a question. Um, but who? How do we experience God? Is something that actually has been very intuitive to me from a very young age. That I'm just a person who experienced God in the world. And I know that's not true for, for many people. There are people who feel they know more things about God than experience God. You know, they don't feel God, they know God. Um, and I feel God, but don't know God. I'm curious where you fall on that and or what you think the relationship is between those. Well, let me ask you a question first about what you just said, if that's okay, which is, does the language of knowing God versus knowing about God help you? Because what you're describing to me sounds like a form of knowing God. It's just not knowing about God. Yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe that's what I mean. Um, I don't know about God. I don't know how to answer the question, who is God? I don't know how to write God's um, biography. You know, Abraham Joshua Heschel, we have a, um, a transcript, I think it is, from a talk he gives to a bunch of Jewish educators in which he says, I was invited recently to give a talk about my idea of God. But I don't have an idea of God. I just have God. Hmm. Now, I, I sometimes worry, to be honest, that in my experience, I'm the opposite. I have an idea of a God who we know through experience, which is paradoxical and confusing, but it's actually a little bit how I, how I think about this. In other words, there have been periods of like great dryness and aridity for me where I really just don't feel the presence of God. But in my mind, God is always there because I'm always thinking about God. In that sense, I think of myself as a kind of weirdo, <laughs> meaning like I'm always there. I'm always thinking about that question. I think the place where I experience God, to use language you were using, is not primarily in prayer at all, but is in the experience of studying Torah, where I feel that there is someone, something there with me that I cannot understand and would never be able to articulate. There's just something there that's really very powerful. Now, some people say it's a kind of a cliche, you know, when I pray, I speak to God, and when I learn, God speaks to me. I would never put it that way, because I don't think God speaks to me, especially since when I learn, I can be wrong. Mm -hmm. But God is there with me when I'm learning. Mm -hmm. It's almost like God 
hovers around the Beit Midrash, if you will, hovers around the study hall. It makes me think of the uh, text when two people learn together the Shekhinah. Yeah, that manifests the Shekhinah or the Shekhinah dwells there. Right. Um, it's like you can feel that that additional presence. Um, I I feel that also, not always, but there are, but I certainly have moments of feeling that. Um, I think when I was little, even especially, I came to understand almost my internal monologue as like actually a dialogue with God. Um, I used to journal a lot and I would sort of experience myself wanting to like sign off at the end of a diary entry. And at some point I sort of asked myself like, who, why am, <laughs> who am I writing to? Right. Um, and my answer was so obvious to me was like, oh, I'm like writing to God as if God needs me to write down my ideas in order to hear them. But um, that that just became very natural to me. Um, or I had an image at a very young age. I don't know exactly how little, but I can remember being at sleepaway camp and telling someone about this idea um, and like them laughing at me in a lighthearted way, not in a mean way, um, that I used to say, oh, I feel like when I'm davening the Amida, when I'm praying the um, the Amida prayer with those sort of long silent uh, Amida that you have an opportunity to have a personal conversation with God that I would say like, oh, when I sit down, I feel like I've been leaving a message for God. And like when I sit down, it's like I hung up the message, you know, that that's the end. And that if I would sit down and start talking to my friend and think like, oh, there was one other thing I wanted to pray for, I would mm -hmm. think to myself like, well, I got to wait until the next Amida. Like there was some sense for me that actually that personal prayer moment in the Amida was like a direct voicemail message that I was leaving for God. But um, you couldn't just dial back in? You couldn't get back up and keep going? Yeah, isn't that interesting? It's it not interesting. that God was intimately and always available, actually. It's that the for me, um, the the context or the container of the Jewish prayer service is what actually allowed me to have that connection to God. You know, I, I, I would just add one other place where I don't know if I would call this an experience of God, but it's a sense of God's presence for me is in the experience of moral obligation, in the experience of another person's need making a claim on me or another person's dignity requiring me to act in a particular way. There's some sense in which for me that is like deeply theological, right? It's like I, I've been very moved in my life by texts that imagine that how we treat people who are vulnerable is how we treat God. We see that in the book of Proverbs, say for Mishle, for example, you know, one who gives a loan to the poor gives a loan to his maker. And I, I, I feel like I, I've come to experience that a lot that, and I don't, I don't mean by that, that the person ceases to be real and just becomes, you know, like a vehicle for my relationship with God, quite the contrary, just that it's almost like God is pushing me into this encounter. Stay there. This is where you're supposed to be right now. This is what you're supposed to do. Care about this person. Be attentive to them. I find that to be a deeply kind of religious, theologically loaded kind of experience. Yeah, I think actually I've had very similar spiritual religious experiences of God. Mine, I think my frame falls more into I need to take care of this person because God needs me to do it, um, then because this that is how I take care of God. Um, and it's actually something I drew on a lot as a parent, in especially in early years, but especially early months of being a parent, um, when it was like, here's this baby that needs me all the time at all hours, and I'm in pain, and I don't want to get out right. of bed, um, feeling like, oh, actually, God needs me to feed this baby. 
God can't feed this baby directly, and so I got to get out of bed and do this is something that I was able to draw on to get through those moments. So Avi, who is God? That's a great question. I, I'll tell you um, one place that I like to look for that answer, um, which is that there's a motif in our tradition of texts that introduce God as the image of king, of melech, but they explain God as king, not like a human king, but in contrast to a human king. So, there's it's sort of an entire strain, and they all have different answers, um, different sort of stories and nuances, but the way they go to answer the question about God is to say, well, who is God? God is king. But by king, we mean actually the opposite of a human king. So one text that I return to a lot says, you know, a human king sits at the middle of his kingdom and he surrounds himself with his people to protect him at the center. And this text says, but unlike a human king, unlike a melech basar vadam, God, the divine king, actually puts the people at the center and God surrounds us and protects us. Um, and that, for me, has been an image that I really love and return to, both in part because it has an answer, right? That midrash is not afraid to tell me who God is. It's actually prepared with an image, you know, a, a physical thing that I can picture and a concept of kingship that I might understand. And then also to say you know, the real message of that Midrash, I think, is that God is protecting us, that we're not alone in the world, and that God cares about us and is taking care of us, and also that God is in charge, um, all of which are ideas and images that I find extremely comforting and, and I want in my relationship to God. So, so that's one possible answer as to who God is that I f find myself returning to again and again. I assume I can't ask you here, what do you mean God protects us? Is that true to your experience in any way? Is God protecting us is a hard question to answer. But I'll say this. For me, I have come to understand sort of theologically, experientially for myself that what I'm doing on Rosh Hashanah, on the Jewish New Year, in crowning God King, which is a part of that holiday, is that I'm inviting God to be a protector to be king and to surround us and to take care of us. Um, and whether or not God is always up to the task, uh, whether God is always stepping in to actually do that, I think is, is a harder question to answer. Um, but for me, thinking of God in that way, inviting God to be king in that version of king is, is a spiritual practice of continually inviting God into that role in my life. That's what I would like God to be, I guess. You know, I think there's something extraordinarily moving about the way liturgically it's almost like the liturgy can't decide between whether a god is king or b god will one day be king mm -hmm. right it's like well which one is it on one level if god is god then god is god but on another level look at the world god is not yet god right and and we sort of live with that Right? And on that future day, God will be one and God's name will be one. It's not true yet. The protection language is really hard for me. I, um, I think much more about God who is with us in our sorrows, present in our needs, um, but in some way dependent on us. 
choosing to be dependent on us um, rather than protecting us. But I hear you. So now it's my turn to ask you, who is God? I, I think I would share a couple of images that I think about a lot, wrestle with a lot, try to feel my way into a lot. One is the notion that God loves widows and orphans. That we worship someone who remembers those whom everyone else forgets. And that that means that if we want to worship that God, we have to try and become more like that God ourselves. The notion that just the idea of of a God who sees the unseen. I mean, one of the more most amazing scenes in all of Torah to me is the moment when the only person in the Hebrew Bible, in Ta- the only person in Tanakh who gives God a name is Hagar, who says to God, Ata el roi, you are the God who sees me. It's just so exquisite. Here's a slave woman, oppressed, unseen. Her masters won't even call her by a name. They just call her that slave woman. And then the angel shows up. And the first thing the angel says is, Hagar names her and just bracket for a minute, everything else. And she says, you are the God who sees me. You see even me. You see those of us who go through life feeling invisible. And I I just find that image so incredibly moving. Um, As I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about something that I'm embarrassed to say I have not really thought about before, which is that I'm partially obsessed with the image of God who loves orphans because I was an orphan. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was an orphan who I lost my father and I was left with a mother who was in almost every way completely incapable of taking care of me. And a God who loves orphans is a very resonant image. I've literally never really thought about that before, which is remarkable in its lack of self-awareness, I would say. But it's really, really, really interesting. It echoes the second image of a God who sees you. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. No, 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 exactly right. Um, I think the other image that I think about a lot that has really come from my experience of counseling young adults is... When Rabbi Akiva says that every human being is beloved because we're created in the image of God, that means that we are always loved no matter what. And that means that even when we hate ourselves, God still loves us. And I, I say that because, you know, I've just spent, you know, as a Hillel rabbi in the early years of Hadar, I was doing a lot of, you know, one-on-one time with young adults and, you know, watching the incredible battles with self-esteem and self-loathing and self-doubt and self-recrimination and all this kind of stuff. And I don't think I ever really said this in that setting, but sometimes I would be inclined to say, you know, for all the horribly negative things you're saying about yourself, God loves you right now. God loves you even when you can't muster one ounce of love for yourself. And I think there's something really powerful about that. It's almost like I think of God's love as endlessly stubborn. You will do everything you can to make me give up on you, but I won't. That's actually, you know, the prophet Hosea says says that very thing. God says to the Jewish people, 
How can I give up on you? I want to give up on you because you drive me crazy, but I can't give up on you. And you know why? Because I'm God and not a person. I'm God. People can give up on each other. I can't give up on you. That's, that's in some ways, you know, in some ways, I think that's one of Judaism's most interesting claims is the idea that God believes in us, which is on some level crazy. How would anyone believe in human beings at this stage in history? But that's what we say who God is. Having had the privilege of being your student and colleague for years and hearing you teach about love and God's love, hearing you teach about God's love in particular, um, is putting that image together with the, these, this image of God as parent, which is so present in our liturgy also, um, and being able to use that as a model in thinking about what it looks like to be a parent and to, you know, sort of channel unconditional love as a parent to say, you know, well, it doesn't matter how you feel about me right now, (laughs) whatever it is that you're yelling at me about, because I love you unconditionally. And, you know, there's nothing you can do to change that. Um, that As a posture, I think is something as, you know, that can really impact our parenting. um, And we can sort of learn directly from God. Yeah, I think this the single greatest parenting lesson that we learn from theology is the realization that God's love comes with expectations but without conditions. Very often as parents, we get confused about that. We think that if we have expectations of our kids, we're making our love conditional. That's really not true at all, right? I expect my kids to behave in certain ways, but I will never stop loving them, even if they fall short of that. You know, and I think that's maybe an important almost a kind of counterweight to some of what I tend to emphasize, which is God loves us, but that love is anything but a blank check. Mm-hmm. It's not, therefore, you know, tatala, go ahead and do whatever you want in the world to other people, or right? It's actually, I expect things of you, and I will also evaluate your behavior. I will never stop loving you. In fact, I love you so much I take you seriously so that what you do matters. Yeah, it's the ultimate caring. It's the ultimate caring. Right. I mean, it's interesting. Moral philosophers talk about this a lot, that one of the reasons, one of the ways we can most disrespect someone is being indifferent when they do something wrong. Because it's the ultimate sign of not valuing them. Mm-hmm. Oh, you just mistreated someone? I don't expect anything better of you. That's, that should be the most insulting thing we can say. Whereas I'm holding you to account is in an interesting way a compliment, Right. I respect you as an agent. I, I make room for you. Yeah. It's so interesting also, you know, this is an image you called on already in this conversation where the same uh, posture we take towards our children can also be the posture we take towards God. I have to care about, but still hold my children accountable and maybe I can care about and still hold God accountable for things as well. Um, be in relationship, you know, have some sort of unbreakable, unending uh commitment to each other. It's really sort of beautiful and moving. Thank you, Avi. This was, as always, lots of fun. It's always great to talk to you, and I look forward to doing it again soon in our next episode. To all of you listening, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us next time for another installment of Many Questions and Answers Withheld. Answers Withheld is produced by Hadar, with special thanks to Rabbi Effie Unterman, Mara Bronfeld, Sam Greenberg, and Hannah Kupitz. Thank you to David Chabinski for recording and editing this episode.